All right. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Cool. All right. Bibles, if you have it, go ahead and grab it right now. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. This morning, this morning we're going to do two things. We are going to wrap up our study of the book of Jonah in the fourth and final chapter, and we are going to, at the same time, wrap up camp. See, see in just a few moments, we'll wrap up camp, and um, there'll be a few other things going on, I'm sure, but you'll be heading down the hill. And, and, and here's what I'm convinced of. Um, when we're in a moment like this, it's important to get our heads straight about what comes next. Because the most important thing about what happened this weekend isn't actually what's already happened, it's what happens next. And here's what I just love about where we get to go this morning. I think the fourth chapter of Jonah is the perfect chapter for every single one of you who want to leave this place and continue walking with Jesus, who want to leave this place and continue in faithfulness to the Lord, this Yahweh we've been looking at all weekend. And yet the fourth chapter of Jonah is kind of this mystery. In fact, if you've kind of known the story of Jonah vaguely throughout the years, the fourth chapter is the one you've probably skipped because it really shouldn't exist. It's like everything got wrapped up neatly at the end of chapter three. It was like Jonah finally obeys, goes to Nineveh. He proclaims the message, people repent, and it should be like the credits roll, the end. But then there's this fourth chapter that just kind of like lingers out there. It'd almost be like if you watched Finding Nemo, right? And you see the whole scene of dad hunting down Nemo and they finally get back together. And then the end of the movie, they're back in the wreath and they're together and they're happy. And then it's like, you're like, oh, that's like the end of the movie. And they're like, no, no, here's another half hour where Nemo and his dad are fighting and angry with each other and Nemo leaves. And then the movie ends. That would be the most like, what? How did that happen? It was like all neatly wrapped up in a bow and then it just kind of fell apart at the end. And that, my friends, is the story of Jonah. See, what we're gonna look at this morning is not the story of something that ends neatly. It's actually going to be the story that unravels at the very end and then leaves you with a question. And it is a question that I want all of you thinking about as we wrap up camp and as you head down the hill today. And here's the question. Will you care about the things that God cares about? Will you care about the things that God cares about? Let me show you this in Jonah chapter four, verse one, it begins this way. It says, but, Jonas, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now, what is the this referring to? This is referring to two things. One, the fact that Nineveh repented. Remember, they put on sackcloth, they repented, they called upon the Lord. And number two, the very end of chapter three says that God relented from the calamity that he had promised out of his great mercy and compassion, he spares the city of Nineveh. And to Jonah, this seems, it says, very wrong. And he becomes angry. Now, here's something I've learned in my life. You can learn a lot about a person by what it takes to make them angry. You, you learn a lot about a person by what it takes to make them angry. Like I was thinking about this years ago in my church. Uh, I was standing out in the lobby after a church service and this woman comes walking over to me and she is angry. She's like real mad. She is fired up. She goes, pastor, pastor, I need to tell you something about one of your staff. And now listen, when something on my staff goes wrong, I really hold our staff members to this high accountability. And so if they say something they should have said or treat someone in a poor way, I'm always really on top of them. But this woman comes up to me and she's so fired up and she goes, I need to tell you what happened. And I go, what happened? She goes, one of your worship leaders on stage today. I was like, oh no, what did they say? What did they do? She goes, well, he was on stage this morning 
He was wearing a hat. <laughs> and I heard that, and, and like, I had to be like, am I being punked right now? Like this might be a trick someone's playing on me, but she is fired up about the hat. Now listen, here's the deal. You haven't seen me preach in a hat all weekend, right? Like I wear hats, not on stage, not my deal. Maybe it's your deal. I'm, not, I'm, I'm a moderate on wearing hats on stages, okay? I don't have a strong opinion. But here's what I know. This individual, this worship leader wearing a hat on stage made this woman so angry. And here's the deal, again, I don't wear hats on stage, it's not my deal, but here's the thing. This woman had left a worship service where the word of God was being proclaimed and the people of God were gathered together to worship Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, the God over all things. Our hearts and affections were set on God and his word and she walked out of there thinking about a hat. And here's what I was convicted of in this moment. I think the longer you are a Christian, the easier it is to start caring about things that aren't really that important. And hear me on this. I don't share the story of the woman with the hat so that we can giggle at her. Because it's easy to giggle at the woman in the hat and then turn around and next time you are at youth group, you see the worship set list and you're like, mm, those aren't my favorite songs. I don't like those songs. I don't really like the worship. I didn't, you know, you'll say things like, I didn't really like the worship today, which is like not a problem for God because we weren't worshiping you in the first place. But like you come out and you're like, well, I didn't really care for the songs. And it's like, in this moment, the people of God were gathered to worship God and you're worried about the song selection. Or like for some of you, there's been like transitions in your youth ministry or your church or your youth pastor over the last couple of years and maybe you've changed where you go to summer camp or you've changed an event or you've changed how things work in youth group and you're like, well, I used to like the summer camp we go to but I don't like it so much anymore. I think I'm gonna start going to summer camp with a different church, right? And here's you starting to care about things that are just so minor in the grand scheme of things. Like some of you look at other youth groups and you see how they function, the way they play games or they have lights and smoke machines and all these crazy things and you're just kind of like looking down, judging, condemning those other places. And here's what I want you to know. Every time we start to worry about things that God is not really that worried about, it starts to lead us into a smaller and smaller direction and it is always going to make us angry. And here is my question for you this morning. I'll repeat it again. Do you care about the things that God cares about? See, that's what this fourth chapter is going to confront us with, this question. This woman who is so obsessed with a hat. Listen, whether a hat or not, we can discuss that, but that is not the heart of God. Either what songs you sing in youth group, where you go to summer camp, what exactly things look like, who else comes to your small group, what time your youth group meets, none of those things are at the heart of who God is. There's something else entirely, and I want you to see it here in the fourth chapter. In verse 2, it says this. It says, he prayed to the Lord and said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. So remember how the whole story starts? It starts with the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and call out against it for its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah instead fleed from the Lord and he went to Tarshish, to Timbuktu, the furthest possible place away. Now if you're just reading the story on the first time, you probably think he's running away because he doesn't actually want to deal with this hard assignment. He doesn't like the Ninevites. He doesn't think they're going to respond. It would be like me saying like, hey, just go walk into your school on Monday and say, you're all doomed. And you're like, I don't want to do that because that's not actually going to work. 
But you know what chapter four reveals to us? The reason Jonah ran away wasn't because he didn't think it was gonna work, it's because he thought it would. That's the crazy thing about the whole story of Jonah. The whole runaway, be on the ocean, bottom of the sea, in the fish, that whole deal was because Jonah knew the nature and the character of God. Don't miss this. You wanna know what kind of God Yahweh is? It says you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, for all of Jonah's failures, for all of his pitfalls, Jonah understands the nature and character of God better than most of us do. And here's what I know. If I asked you the question, is God a God of love? Most of you'd be like, yeah, we're on board with that. Does God forgive? Is he compassionate? Is he gracious? You'd probably say that. But then the way most of us function when it comes to actually believing in God is, is as if God is still that grumpy old man I described a few nights ago. Always angry, always mad, always bitter toward us. Like here's a thought experiment for you. So you're all about to go home right now and you're about to pile in some cars or some buses or some vans and you're gonna head down the hill. But imagine right after chapel, I pulled you aside. I was like, hey, I need to talk to you real quick. And we went outside and we talked and I said, hey, uh, you're not going home on the bus today. You're not going home with the rest of the church. Um, you, you kind of lucked out, we're, we're gonna get you a private car um, and we're gonna put you in the private car and we're gonna send you down the hill and um, you're just gonna be um, just taken down that way. And you're like, okay, that's kind of weird. And I say, no, it actually gets stranger, track with me here, um, this is so weird. Um, but God is the driver of the car. Like Jesus is gonna be in the front seat and, and you and him for your whole two, three, four, five, six hour drive down the hill, you and him are just gonna have a little chat. Now, there's two different reactions right now. I think if you think God is this bitter, angry person who is always mad at you, and I tell you, you and Jesus are gonna have a chat for six hours, some of you are afraid and ashamed because you think Jesus is gonna get in the car and be like, here's the list of your sins in the last 24 hours. We'll start there and go backwards. Some of you think that's the way Jesus would talk to you. Some of you think if you got in the car and spent six hours with Jesus, it would be the most miserable time of your life. And what that tells me is that you may say with your lips you believe in this kind of God, but you don't actually believe that in your heart. If you actually believed that this is what God was like, and I told you you got to spend four, five, six hours with Jesus in the car, your heart should leap out of your chest. Like, no way. I got to hang out with Jesus face to face for that long? And here's what I promise you, if that exact scenario were to happen, it would fill your cup like never before. You would be filled with love and encouragement and blessing. You would be filled with a sense of the safety you have of a child of God. And were Jesus to talk about your sins, he would talk about it in such a way that draws you out of them rather than leaves you in your shame. So here's what you need to understand. I think right at the core of it, most of us, even if we say we believe in a God who is loving and gracious and patient and compassionate, at the core of our heart, we don't. And here's what I need some of you to know. God is compassionate with you. Like God just knows, here's what he knows. God knows you're gonna go back home and you're gonna stumble into some of the same sins you've stumbled in before. Can we just say that out loud? I think some of you have this idea in mind, like I've repented of my sin and I'm gonna go back home and I'm never gonna do that thing again and then by Wednesday of this week, you've done that thing again so you think God's done with you. Can I remind someone that God is not done with you now? He's not done with you ever. He will never leave, never forsake. He is the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. See, Jonah, for all of his failures, for all of his selfishness, understands deeply who God is. The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh 
is because Jonah knew that God would forgive them. In verse 3, it says this, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Like, in other words, Jonah is so mad that they repented. He's so angry that God forgave them. He's going, God, how could you forgive a people like this? Remember how we described Nineveh at the beginning? This brutal terrorist state who would chop off people's limbs and burn people alive, take people into slavery, slice off heads and make them carry them around on poles. And Jonah's going, how could you possibly forgive a people like this? How could you possibly move in such a way that those people would be spared from calamity? And what Jonah's heart posture reveals is a heart posture that I think some of us have. I think some of you have actually come to believe that there are certain kind of people God can save and certain type of people who are too far gone. Some of you actually come to believe there are certain people that are like pretty ripe for saving and other people that are just kind of too far gone. They hate God too much. They're too far. It's too difficult. They would never come to church. They would never come to camp. They would never come to Jesus. They would never be baptized. And here's what I want you to know about our God. God looks at your silly little statement about who would never come to him and he laughs because that is what our God delights in doing. Our God delights in doing the impossible. He delights in doing the shocking thing. And so here's what I have to do with that. I have to look at the most far gone, difficult, hardened people in my life and never for even a moment write them off from coming to Jesus. Like, I need you to know something. My life, when it comes to my family life, is not this like perfect, wonderful fairy tale. I've got three brothers, and my older one I know and I love, and I have a great relationship with. My younger one I have a great relationship with. But then I've got a younger brother named Stephen. And I haven't spoken to Stephen since October 3rd of 2017. And I know that date because it was the day before my first child was born. He texted me, good luck. And since then, I have not heard from him. No one in my family has. He has written us off. He has walked away. He has said, forget you to you guys. Forget you to your God. He's gone his own direction, doing his own thing, walking in his own sin. And here's the temptation for me. When I pray for his salvation, my temptation is to pray in such a way to be like, God, like, I don't know if it's possible for you to save Stephen. I don't know if it's possible for you to change his heart because he's pretty far gone. My temptation is to doubt that God could possibly save my brother. But can I tell you something? Our God's not intimidated by that. Our God's not scared of that. In a moment, God could go get Stephen. In a moment, he could break through the hardness of Stephen's heart, turn his heart to Jesus, and return him to his family. Like, he could do that in a moment. And you know why he can do that? Because there really is a Holy Spirit of God. And that Holy Spirit of God really can effectuate salvation in the hearts of the most hardened person. There really is a spirit of God that can live inside of our bones. And when he does, nothing can stop God's purposes in this world. It's true for my brother, Stephen. And listen, someone needs to hear me. It's true for your best friend. It's true for your sister. It's true for your dad, who you have a rocky relationship with at best. It's true for your teacher. It's true for your coach. It's true for the person in this world that you're so certain God could never save. There really is a Holy Spirit. There really is a God who can step into the most hardened situations and change everything. Verse 5 says this. It says that Jonah had gone out and sat in a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in the shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, this is a silly moment, right? Because God already said, I'm not going to judge the city. And Jonah's like, just in case God changes his mind, I'm going to get a good seat for this. 
And he sits down to watch what's going to happen to the city. It's like he still thinks they deserve judgment, even though God says, I'm not bringing it. And what does God do to this selfish, hard-hearted, knuckle-headed prophet? It says in verse 6, Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah for shade over his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. This is the first time in the entire story of Jonah that Jonah has been happy about anything. This is the first time he's been pleased with anything, happy about anything. He's sitting there still thinking the city is going to burn. God is going to rain fire upon it. And God's like, you know what? You're pretty silly, but it's pretty hot outside. So he makes a plant grow up from the ground to give shade. It's just to ease his discomfort. And you know what that tells me? That even in my most judgmental, cynical moments where I fail the most as a Christian, God still blesses me because God blesses cynical, judgmental people. And if that's you sometimes... I want you to know that it's not just the sinner who's far from God that God is after. It's the sinner who is close to God and has a relationship with God and the sinner who still doesn't get the heart of God. He wants to bless you. He wants to be with you. He wants to, even in moments, ease a discomfort. Like he just blesses you in these small ways, big ways. God is for you. He is with you. He is on your side and he is filled with patience. Do you notice how God continues to be patient with Jonah? And for some of you, you have this little deal where like you've come up to camp so many times, repented, and then gone back home and done the same thing. And you think God's up in heaven kind of going like, all right, that's the fifth camp you've repented. I'm, I'm out of patience for you. Five's the limit. Four is okay. Six is out of hand, out of the question, right? But here's the deal about our God. He is infinitely patient. He is watching you grow. He is waiting on you. He's not giving up on you. He wants you to become the type of person that is formed and made into the image and the likeness of his son, Jesus. It says this way in verse 7. It says, but at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. You know what happens in this moment? God provides a leafy plant to grow over Jonah's head. It says to ease his discomfort. And then in a moment, God sends a worm and eats away at the plant and the plant is now gone. And Jonah has lost the one thing he's actually happy with in this world. Jonah has lost the one thing he's actually excited about, the one thing his heart is set upon in this world, this plant that is giving him comfort. And now that he does not have comfort, he's not even sure it's worth living anymore. He's done, he quits, he's out. Because for Jonah, being uncomfortable is worse than not being alive. And here's what I know is true about you, and here's what I know is true about me. That comfort, being comfortable, is one of the greatest idols and greatest competitors to your heart when it comes to following Jesus. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. I want you to write down these words. If I want to be faithful to Jesus, if I want to be faithful to Jesus, I must renounce comfort as my highest goal and aim. I must renounce it. I must actively, out loud, say comfort is no longer my goal. It is no longer my aim. I must decide if I want to follow Jesus that being uncomfortable is something I'm okay with. Being uncomfortable is something I embrace in life rather than run away from that. 
And here's what I know for all of you, that comfort is something you seek. Comfort is something you've been given. We live in a comfortable time, in a comfortable country where everything's comfortable. And yet, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to step outside of comfort and renounce it as your highest aim. What does that mean practically? It means you're going to go back to small group this week, Bible study, youth group. And there's going to be discussions going on. And the easiest, most comfortable thing in the world is to not really tell people what's going on, not really talk about your struggles, not really talk about the heart stuff going on, not really talk about your sin. But you must renounce comfort as your highest goal and lean into a conversation where you're actually willing to be vulnerable. I don't just mean being honest. Being honest is easy. Being vulnerable means you could be hurt by this. And that's what you need to step into, where you share and share to a level that it actually feels uncomfortable because you have renounced comfort as your highest goal. When you head down the hill today, I know that some of you will go back home into an unbelieving home, meaning your parents or your brothers or your sisters are not Christians, and they will ask you about how your week is at camp, and the most comfortable thing to do will be say things like, well, there was snow, and we went tubing, and it was so fun, it was a great weekend. That's a comfortable way to approach it. You wanna know what makes things uncomfortable? Bring Jesus into the conversation. Talk about the Lord, the resurrected one. You want to make things uncomfortable when you go home? You say, you know what? It was a great weekend. Snow, tubes, awesome. Let me tell you the most important part. I had an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus. He is loose in this world, and I want you to know about him too. That's uncomfortable. And listen, if that starts to like raise your heart rate, like I don't know if I could do that, that's exactly what you need to do. Because if you want to be faithful to Jesus, you must renounce comfort as your highest aim, as your highest goal in this world. Everything you do, when you start to lean into comfort, it leans you away from faithfulness to God. This is Jonah's problem. He's obsessed with what makes him comfortable rather than what makes him faithful. It says in verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And he said, and I am so, he said, it is, he said, and I'm so angry that I wish I were dead. Uh, again, for Jonah, there's just all these things going wrong. Everything's gone wrong in the entire story. God spoke to him, told him something he didn't want to do. He went, he ended up in the whale, or he ended up in the fish, and then he goes to Nineveh, and Nineveh actually responds, and they're not going to be judged. He is angry, so angry, so bitter about what's happened that he's not even sure life is worth living. See, here's what's happened. Somewhere along the way, he's grown so angry about Nineveh, so mad about Nineveh, so mad about their sin and their wickedness and how far they are away from God, so bitter about the people of Nineveh and so wishing God would bring judgment upon them because he sees them in their spiritual bankruptcy and he is filled with contempt for Nineveh. He is filled with contempt for people who are far away from God. And I've thought about this often. I think when we encounter people who are far from God, people who are not Christians, people who do not know the love and the mercy and the grace of Jesus and people who do not call upon the name of the Lord, when you look on social media and see influencers mocking and belittling churches and Christians, when you see people on TV or you see people on your computer who are saying things that are completely contrary to the faith of Jesus Christ, when you see people in this world who stand against the church and stand against her Lord Jesus, when you see that, here's my question for you. When you see people far from God, are you filled with contempt or are you filled with compassion? Are you filled with contempt 
or are you filled with compassion? I'll put it this way. So um, I remember in high school, the first time I went on a mission trip. Can you raise your hand if you've ever been on a mission trip of any kind? Okay, so many of you, not all of you, but many of you. Uh, Even if you haven't been, I think you'll get this. So the first time I went on a mission trip, uh, I went, and and, and the thing that shocks our eyes the first, and and I'm sure you had some similar experience, um, was the poverty that you see, right? So you go to certain places and you just see like families of 12 living in this tiny little shack that's like bigger or smaller than your bedroom and it's like made of tin and it just doesn't work at all and there's not running water and there's not enough food and kids are malnourished and they need medical attention and when I see that and I look at that and I see the kind of poverty, I don't walk in there and be like, you people are the worst. No, I don't walk in there and you don't walk in there thinking that either. You see that and your heart breaks with compassion. I remember being in high school, and the first time I see that, my heart is just filled with compassion. But then here's what I remember so distinctly. I went back to my public high school that I was going to high school in, and I was walking around the campus seeing the way people talked and seeing the way people dressed and seeing the way people lived their lives and ignored the God who created them and were doing their own thing, walking in their sin. And when I saw it on a mission trip, this poverty, I was filled with compassion. And then I went back onto my campus, and I was filled with contempt for all these people who were fighting against the Lord Jesus. And maybe you've experienced the same thing where you're so filled with judgmental rage toward all these people in this world who stand against the things of Jesus. And here's my question for you. Why is it that when you see physical poverty, you are filled with compassion, but when you see spiritual poverty, you are filled with contempt? That's the question I want us to wrestle with. Because when I see physical poverty, material, financial poverty, I should be filled with compassion. But you know what? The same thing should apply when I see spiritual poverty. When I see someone, no matter how strong or powerful or mighty they look, who does not know Jesus, they are spiritually bankrupt. They are impoverished spiritually. And my heart should go out to them with compassion, with love. Like I see the way you're living and I know the direction you're going and I know it won't satisfy you. And I want you to know that there is a well of water that you can drink from that will satisfy your soul. That should be the compassion I have. Not this judgmental, angry, look down upon people. I should be filled with compassion for those who are far from God. Like here's what I'll say this way. That you will know how much you are like Jesus by how you react to people who despise him. Because Jesus saw people who hated him, spat at him, mocked him, belittled him, lied about him. And Jesus' heart was filled with compassion and love toward them. Rather than contempt and judgment. That should be the same for us. When you go back to school tomorrow, listen, as you walk around your campus, can I encourage you to look around and not be filled with judgment and anger about the way people are talking or dressing or living, but rather to look at the people far from God and go, my heart goes out for them because they are spiritually impoverished and I want them to know the riches of Christ Jesus. In verse 10, it says this, but the Lord said, this is the very end of the story, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant though you did not tend it or make it grow up. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, where there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And then the book ends. That's it. It ends with a question. God's like, should I not also care about Nineveh? 120,000 people can't tell their right hand from their left, also many animals, question mark, end of book. There's only two books in the entire Bible that end with a question mark. One is this, the other is Nahum, just like real close in the Minor Prophets there. This is the only, one of only two books that ends with a question. Like it doesn't end resolved, it doesn't end like all laid out neatly for us, it simply ends with a question. And the reason it ends with a question is because you and I 
need to answer that question. You and I need to answer the question we've been asking all morning, and this is the question, will you care about the things that God cares about? God goes, there's 120,000 people in there. There's animals. There's a whole world that exists there. I care about those people. Don't you care about those people? That's the question that ends the book of Jonah, and that is the question we need to linger on today. Will you care about the things that God cares about? Will you leave on the assignment that God wants you on rather than the assignment you've created for yourself? Like you think about it this way, like a football team has one assignment in the game, right? The one assignment in the game is this, score more points than the other team, period. The other things are cool or interesting, but they don't ultimately matter. What matters at the end of a football game, the assignment is score more points than the other team. And so if the players roll up on the coach after they lose like 45-0 and they're like, coach, but look at my wristbands. Look how cool they are. Coach would be like, who cares about your wristbands? They're like, coach, did you see back there? Did you see that little celebration we did when we got that sack? The coach would be like, who cares? We lost, right? Because there is an assignment And if you don't get what the core of the assignment is, nothing else you do really matters in this life. And I need you to know that God has given you a clear assignment in this world. God has given you a clear mission, a clear mandate, a clear assignment that you are to walk in all the days of your life. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down these three things. Here's your assignment as you go home. Number one, love God. Love God. Number two, love God's people. And number three, love people who are far from God. Number one, love God. Number two, love God's people. Number three, love people who are far from God. Let's start with number one, love God. Here's what I want you to know. Loving God is the core of what it means for us to walk with Jesus, for us to be faithful to God, to be faithful to Yahweh, and you want to love God with your whole heart and soul and mind and strength. When I say love God, I do not principally mean that you have an emotional feeling toward God, although that can be a good, healthy, right thing. When I say love God, I want your whole life to be oriented toward God. Like, let me put it to you this way. So maybe some of you are familiar with this. When I was in high school, I went to all the summer camps, all the winter camps, Eight summer, or eight total, right? Four winter camps, four summer camps when I was in high school. And I had this wonderful pattern that some of you will recognize right away. I would go to winter camp, I'd be on top of the world and love Jesus, forsake my sin and love my Lord, and then about a month later I would dip. But then I would start to be like, summer camp is coming, right? And so I would roll on up at summer camp and I would go up like this. And then after summer camp, summer camp's a little longer, so maybe it's like six weeks I'm fired up for Jesus. And then it would dip. And I would do this thing eight times over and over and over again. I would ride the camp high until there was no longer a thing. And then I would roll out into the next thing. And if you've been there, if you know what it's like, it is endlessly frustrating, right? It's like endlessly frustrating to be like, I was so close to Jesus a month and a half ago, but now I don't know what happened. And here's what I want you to be aware of this morning. Some of you will tell me right now that you are riding a camp high, and I would like you to scrub that from your vocabulary. There is no such thing as a camp high, because God doesn't live here at Hume Lake. He's not like, that's my house over there. Like, he doesn't live here. He does not live here at Hume Lake. Listen, you do not have a camp high right now. You have an obedience high. That's what you have. It's not about camp. It's obedience. People act like this is this big mystery. They're like, I don't know why I feel so close to God. All I've done the last few days is joined together with God's people in worship. I've sat under the teaching of the word of God. I've prayed. I've abandoned my sins that I was so stuck on. I'm not on my phone constantly because I don't have service. I've been in with God's people, confessing and repenting and seeking the Lord and setting my heart on things above. And mysteriously, I feel close to God. 
and I just want to go like, you don't have a camp high. You're walking in obedience. And when you walk in obedience, when you draw near to God, God draws near to you. Jesus says this, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So what do you need to do going home? You need to continue to walk in obedience. Can I give you the two-step formula to spiritual growth? This is so profound, it'll blow your mind. Two steps. Number one, write this down. Listen to God. Step two, do what he says. (laughs) That's it. Like some people make it so much more complicated. They're like, we got to do all these crazy things. It's not like, listen to God. Listen in his word, listen during sermons, listen during prayer, listen during when you see God's people talking to you and you sense that the spirit, like listen to God and then just go do what he says. Because here's what you need to know. Spiritual growth does not come from information. It comes from obedience. And some of you think spiritual growth is gonna come when you read some big new theology book or when you study the Melchizedek priesthood or when you study Hebrew or Greek words. And listen, I'm a nerd, I love all those things. But you can be puffed up with knowledge and not actually be mature. Spiritual maturity happens when I listen to Jesus and actually do what he says. You want to go home and love God? Do what Jesus says. Listen to God. Do what he says. Rinse and repeat for the rest of your life till you go to be with him in glory. Love God. Number two is love God's people. God's people have a name. And that name given to God's people is the church. When I say love God's people, what I want you to do is to commit to loving God's people in the context, in the setting of the local church. Not that just you would have some friends who are Christians, but that you would commit to your church, that you would submit to the leadership of your church, and that you would declare that your church is what will sustain and continue the faithfulness to Jesus that you've experienced this weekend. Like, I want to put it to you this way, and I hope you'll never forget this. Um, I would like everyone to do something you don't usually hear a pastor tell you to do. Uh, I would like you to grab your cell phone if you have it. Now, some of you, it was like taken away, so you don't have it. Bummer. Uh, But if you have it, go ahead and hold it in your hand right now. Try your best not to get distracted by it. But here's what I want to point out. Um, Raise your hand if this weekend you have not had cell phone reception. Yeah, that's all of you. It's the greatest part of Hume. Um, Raise your hand. And this is more of a packing issue, packing error. Raise your hand if your cell phone is now officially dead and out of battery. (laughs) The people who did not pack their cord, right? All right, so here's what you know about your cell phone. Your cell phone needs two things to work. Number one, it needs power. It needs power to work, meaning if your cell phone does not have power, you have purchased for yourself a very expensive paperweight. That's all you have, right? When it's dead, and it's so dramatic, it's like, it's dead. It is gone. Rest in peace, right? Like it's dead. When it doesn't have power, you've got nothing to work with, but it also needs a second thing. It needs a network, right? And that can be cell service, it can be Wi-Fi, but here's the deal. If you have power in your phone, which you do now, but you do not have cell service, which you don't right now, what you have is a very expensive camera and music player. And maybe some games that aren't connected to the internet. That's all you got. And you can get that for a lot cheaper than what you paid for for your phone. For your phone to function like it should, it needs two things. It needs power and it needs a network. And child of God, let me speak the same over you. If you want to function as a disciple of Jesus, you need two things. You need power and you need a network. That power comes through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of your bones. The moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, which some of you did for the first time last night, the Holy Spirit fills you and lives inside of your bones. The power you have to keep walking with Jesus isn't your strength, it's the strength of the Spirit inside of you. So if you don't have the Spirit inside of you, there's no hope for you to function right. But you need to know it's not just one thing you need, it's two. 
It's not just power, it's power and a network. And that network is your church. That you would lean in with your church, that you would be part of your church, not just showing up, but that you would be in, all in. That you would show up to Bible study, that you would serve in a ministry, that you would give financially to your church, that you would listen to your leadership and submit to them, that you would learn and that you would grow and that you would be all in with your church. You know what the heartbreaking tragedy is? Two months from now, there are some of you who will bail completely on your church because there's some kind of drama going on. As if somehow, like, that's unique to church and there's never been any drama anywhere but church, right? Like, here's what I need you to know. If you want to grow in your faith, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you need power through the Spirit. You need a network through your church. You were never meant to do this thing on your own. Lean in. Be a part of it. If you're not sure what that means, find your youth pastor on the way down the hill at lunch today. Be like, listen, Brian was talking about leaning in with the church. How can I do that more? How can I serve? How can I give? Can I show up early to set up chairs? Can I show up early to pray for people? Can I invite someone to church? Can I be a part of the ministries of the church? How can I lean in more? Because when you lean in with the network, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you, it changes you and it equips you to love God's people. The mission, the mandate, the assignment you have is to love God, to love God's people. And finally, it is to love people who are far from God. It is to love people who, in the words of the Bible, are lost, spiritually bankrupt, enemies of God, far from God, to love people who hate God, to love people who belittle God, who love people who make fun of you for going to Jesus camp this weekend, who make fun of you for being a Christian and going to church, who make fun of you for your moral decisions and stances. It is to love those people, not to hate those people. And how do we love those people? We do the same thing we do with our faith that we do with everything else we love to the people we love. You ever notice how much you share what you love with the people you love? You watch some great new show on Netflix, you don't be like, oh, that was so cool. I will never tell anyone about that. No, what do you do? You like call up all your friends, you text them, you're like, hey, you gotta see this show, it's so good. You ever gotten pressure on seeing a show? It's intense. You're like, you gotta see this show. You're like, I know, like I don't have time right now. No, 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 you got, you, you, Brett, it is a life and death matter right now. People do this to me and I'm like so intimidated. At one point I had like six documentaries I had to watch or else I was just like not a friend to these people. What do we do? We share what we love with them. Or you see some great meme, right, on the internet. You're not like, ha, that's hilarious. I will never share that, right? No, you share it with everyone. Even people who don't really understand it, you show it to people all around. And you just tell people about it. And you're even okay with the awkward person who's like, I don't get it, right? Because you share what you love with the people you love. And what do I want you to do with Jesus? If you love him, I want you to share what you love with the people you love. Like evangelism, sharing your faith, caring about people far from God, isn't about you like coming up with some strategy where you're gonna shame people for their sin or you're gonna debate people into loving Jesus. All you're gonna do is you're gonna share what you love with the people you love. You're gonna talk about Jesus. You're gonna share about Jesus. Some people ask me sometimes, so does that mean like I go share about Jesus at my school or do I invite them to church? And I always look at them puzzled and go, what, both? Like, both. Do both. Invite people to your church. Like, invite people to come to church or to youth group with you. Just say, hey, I'm going to youth group on Wednesday. I think it's amazing. It's changed my life. Would love for you to come with me. You know the worst thing they could say? 
No, right? Like devastating. Like now you just ask them, do you want to come with me? And if they say no, you say, you know what? I, I totally appreciate that. I respect that. I'll probably ask again in a month, but I just want you to come with me. And then if they do come with you, you know what you get to be? You get to be the host. Like this is the spiritual gift of hospitality. When someone comes with you, you don't be like, yeah, we're at youth group. I'm going to go hang with my friends, right? No, you like involve them. And then you're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to play a game. We're going to worship. You're going to hear a message. If you don't understand anything, just nudge me and I'll kind of explain. Like you try to help them understand. And then here's the most important part. When you bring someone to church, afterwards, you take them out to lunch and you pay, okay? You pay. And it can be like a cheat. You can be Chick-fil-A, okay? It doesn't have to be a nice lunch, right? Not on Sundays though. Maybe Wednesday nights. All right. But, but listen to me. And then you ask them this, this is such a key question, don't miss this. You sit down with them and you ask them a question, what did you think? And then you don't speak and you listen and you let them process because the word of God has power and it never returns void. And even if they don't fall to their knees and repent, God is doing something in their heart and it behooves you to listen to it. Invite people to church. Like I would say this, if you have not invited someone to church since like 2020 when this whole mess began, it's time to change that. It's time to think about that one person that you would love to see baptized someday and start praying for them. I love the idea that we always want to pray for people more than we talk to them about God. We want to talk to God about people more than we talk to people about God. But we want to talk to people about God. It just means we're going to pray for them. We're going to believe for them. We're going to invite them. So number one, invite them to church. Number two, talk to them about Jesus. There's this popular thought that floats around that's like, I don't need to talk to people about Jesus. I'll just live a really good life. And they'll see my really good life, how I smile and I don't cuss and I buy people muffins, and then they'll come to Jesus. And here's the two problems with that. Number one is, child of God, aren't you self-aware enough to know that you don't always live a really good life? Aren't you self-aware enough to know that you're not like this perfect Jesus, no sin ever in your life person? So it doesn't really work. And number two is the Bible is filled with commands to use your words and actually talk about Jesus. So what I want you to do, go talk about Jesus. And I don't mean vaguely talk about like faith or God. Use the son Jesus always raises the spiritual temperature in the room. Talk about Jesus. Talk about him like he actually exists because he does. So many Christians talk in their life like functional atheists. So someone asks you, how was your morning? And it was just this average morning. And you're like, it was fine. I woke up. I was tired. Brushed my teeth. Got dressed. Came to school, right? But what if you're like, ah, it's fine. I was tired. Brushed my teeth. But on the way in, I was just talking to Jesus, kind of talking about my day. And then I got here and I have this math test later, right? You just weave Jesus into your day. It doesn't have to be this weird thing where you're like, let me tell you about Jesus, right? Like, that's just so like, why, why be weird when you talk about Jesus, Talk about him like he's actually part of your life because he is. And then um, final place where you can talk about Jesus, and this is just like a burden for me every camp I go to. Um, nothing is more disappointing to me than when I go to a camp with a bunch of students and we go up to the mountains or, or somewhere for camp for a whole week and it's all Jesus all the time, right? It's like worship and prayer and Bible study and teaching and sermons and Jesus and people coming to faith and are celebrating and applauding and then you get down the hill and I see your post on social media and it's like, so much fun in the snow. <laughs> like, really? Like this whole deal was about Jesus and you're like, casual Hume Lake photo dump that I spent four hours creating, right? <laughs> Like, no, talk about Jesus. This is your moment. I always think of it this way, right? We've been up at camp thinking about camp all weekend, right? But there's all sorts of people in your life and in your world who have not been thinking about camp at all this weekend. Like they're sitting right now on the couch eating Doritos all over themselves, like just hanging, doing, this is what I imagine people doing all the time. Maybe it's because what I want to be doing. Well, anyway, um, 
But listen, like they're just hanging out. And then here's what I always just dream of. Like how cool would it be? They're just kind of watching TV, flipping through their phone. And then suddenly it's like they can't turn to any social media channel without hearing the name of the sun. Like that's what I think about all the time. That you just, Jesus just floods the internet today because you all are going home. That Jesus just becomes the word you talk about because when you talk about Jesus, it changes people. So let me just challenge you. As you go home today and you post your pictures or you talk about what went on, talk about Jesus on social media. Talk about Jesus to your family. When people ask you what you did this weekend, just don't chicken out. Don't go into comfort. Don't be like, oh, I went to the snow with some friends, church, um, and then you rock, roll on. Talk about Jesus. Step out in that comfort because here's what happens. I was thinking about it this way. Okay, so um, this is, these are rough estimates, okay? Okay. Um, I went and looked up this morning because I, I don't know what you kids these days do, um, uh, but I was looking up how many like average followers the average person on their social media has as a teenager. And I'm gonna say a number right now. And for some of you, that number is gonna be like, what, that's the average? I feel so bad about myself, right? And then some of you are gonna hear the number and be like, that low, I must be an influencer, right? <laughs> but here's the average, I'm not kidding you. Here's the actual data from Instagram. Average account, 150 followers. I know, I know. So I know there's all sorts of emotion in the room, but, but let's, let's just go with that number. Okay, okay, all right, we're going to go with that number. And then, whoa, whoa, I lost you. I lost you, but pull back in. All right, let's put it this way. There's a little over 700 people in this chapel right now. A little over 700. And I get you're like, oh, technically there's some cross. Okay, let's not just, let's just keep it simple, okay? 150 followers, 700 of us here. If every single one of us Every single one of us posted about Jesus on our way down the hill today. Do you know there are over 100,000 people would hear about Jesus today? So, so here's my question for you. Do you guys want 100,000 people to hear about your Savior today? Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's go home today and make sure 100,000 people hear about Jesus. Because here's what you need to know about my Jesus. Romans chapter 10 and verse 11. This has been our theme verse, a paragraph throughout the whole weekend. Here's what it says. As scripture says, which if scripture says it, it's true. Take it to the bank. It'll never fail. Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, which means anyone. There's no difference between anyone. The same Lord is Lord and richly blesses all who call on him, which some of you have done this weekend. Four, verse 13, you should recognize this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they know the name of Jesus unless someone says it in their school, says it in their family, posts it on their social media, testifies to the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ when they go down the hill today? How is anyone going to hear about Jesus unless someone like us tells them? And it says, how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And child of God, you are sent. You are being sent down the hill today as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You want to do something beautiful and spectacular with your life? Go tell someone about Jesus today. Go tell hundreds of people about Jesus today. Verse 16, but it did not all Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes through the message, and the message is heard from the word of Christ. We speak about Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We share about Jesus. We we tweet about Jesus, we post about Jesus, we tell the world about Jesus because here's what happened in the very beginning of the book of Jonah. It says the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And what does he do? He disobeys. He doesn't do what God says. He listens to God, but he does not do what he says. He goes through this whole chapter and this whole bottom of the sea experience. He's vomited back up and the, what does it say? The word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. 
And this time he listens to God and he does what God says. And what happens because of one man's obedience? An entire city of 120,000 human beings turns and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. One man obeys, an entire city gets saved. And here's the question I'll close with this morning. What would happen if every single one of us listened to God and did exactly what he said? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Thanks for being a God who speaks. You spoke to Jonah. You speak to us. We continue to listen. God, help us to obey and do what you say. God, I pray that there would be hundreds of thousands of people who in some small way would hear about Jesus because of this weekend. I pray that we would flood the world with the message and the good news that every person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Father in heaven, I pray Jesus lifted high. I pray Jesus exalted. I pray that every knee would, confess, or every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I pray that the people in this room would know Jesus, that they would know you, the Father, Yahweh, the God over all gods and the King over all kings. God, thank you for the story of Jonah. May we listen to it closely. May we respond to your word. And may Jesus Christ be honored and glorified in all things. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen.